In, in previous operations in Gaza, the Israelis stated that they want to basically reduce the power of Hamas and make sure that it can't attack Israel. But now they've clearly stated military objectives is to dismantle Hamas completely and make sure that Gaza can never be used again as an attack point against Israel. So that uh, necessarily means the assumed mission would be total elimination of Hamas terrorists. Welcome back. I'm here again with my good friend, Frank Milburn. How are you doing, my friend? Hey, brother. How's it going, mate? Nice to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you, too. It's always good to see you. Okay. So today, we're going to talk about a very controversial topic, and we're going to try to do it without the controversy. So as you're watching this, we're going to discuss the current operations in Gaza, and we're going to try to do it from a very professionalized view of the Israelis have a problem that they have to solve. How can they do it in a way that minimizes the impact to civilians who frankly are caught in this mess and don't deserve bad things to happen either side? And how do they get at Hamas in a way that they can surgically, to the extent that that's even possible in this situation, and annihilate that organization. And at the same time, we might even look at it from the other perspective. What can Hamas do to kind of slow things down and achieve victory in whatever their sense of the word? That's going to be a little bit more difficult. But again, we're not trying to make any judgment calls here just right now there's a problem that has to be solved and you have two former professional military officers with experience in these sorts of things talking about it all right so frank what's the situation here well are we talking about the tactical situation sean let's start with the strategic and then we'll get to the operational tactical very quickly well, the strategic is that Israel suffered this horrendous, brutal, and barbaric attack on 7th of October. And that has basically shattered what was the previous accommodation which Israel had with Hamas, because Israel has fought Hamas on numerous previous occasions. And there was a kind of like a modus operandi whereby the Israelis would allow in, you know, aid, fuel, water, and supplies, and also allow Gazans to work with permits inside Israel in return for Hamas not launching attacks against Israel. But since this attack, yeah, we've seen that now Israel has totally blockaded the Gaza Strip, and they are basically denying all suministro in Spanish, all kinds of supplies into the Gaza Strip, precisely because Hamas is dug in in tunnels beneath civilian infrastructure. And also for years, Hamas has appropriated fuel medicine, food, water, all kinds of supplies that were destined for Gaza civilian population, including using water pipes that were imported, steel water pipes to make rockets, and also the billions in aid that have been spent in Gaza by the UN and by donors like the United Arab Emirates. They have all been used to fabricate buildings with dual-use purposes by Hamas on the surface, firing points and below the surface with tunnels linking not only Hamas command, rocket, smuggling, and infiltration tunnels, 
but also linking those to civilian houses and hospitals. So Hamas terrorists can emerge from whichever point to carry out hit and run attacks. Just to add to that as well, the timing of this is very interesting, particularly since the Abraham Accords, I think, were on the verge of being signed between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So the timing, you could argue, is coincidental, but I doubt it. I think the Iranians kind of have a likely have a hand in this in the sense that having Israel and Saudi Arabia getting closer is not great for the balance of power for the Iranians in the region. Now, there's also the complication that Hamas is Sunni, the Iranians are Shia, but I really don't think that the Iranians necessarily care because they can use Hamas as a harassment tool. Additionally, the U.S. has two aircraft carrier groups that are in the region. I believe, and again, I hope the audience checks me on this, but I believe it's the largest armada in NATO history in one region. So the other thing that's important to note is that there's a number of hostages that have been taken into these tunnels, and they're not just Israeli hostages. A lot of them, or many of them, have dual U.S., Israeli citizenship. So there are Americans that have been taken hostage. Have a number of Brits been taken hostage as well? Yeah, there's some Brits, Germans, other nationalities. But I want to say, Sean, I mean, you know, you were a soldier, I was a soldier, you know, I served in Iraq. You expect as a soldier to be uh, attacked by the enemy, that the enemy wants to kill you. And to be honest, the outrages in Israel on October the 7th would have affected me less had they only been directed against the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, because right. you would expect terrorists of Hamas to attack the IDF. But the fact that they looted, raped, kidnapped, and burnt babies in their cribs was designed to terrorize not just Israeli society, but also a broader Western society as well. To advertise on Through Glass Darkly, Email thrillglassdarkly ads at gmail.com. Well, and the other thing that's important to note, too, is civilians die as part of war, but Western militaries don't typically attack civilians to attack civilians. There's typically collateral damage. There's things that happen. This was a deliberate attack on defenseless women and children. So it would be very difficult for any nation to accept an attack like this without a response, right? This live and let live. As an example, let's take the United States. People really don't realize that after 9-11, in the number of operations that have been spawned since then, according to the Watson Institute, which is at Brown University, the direct and indirect loss of life as a result of that was in the range of 4.7 to 4.9 million, okay? <laughs> like million people, right? Close to 5 million people died as a result of that. So this is 1,400 people is very likely worse than 9-11. And people also need to understand that the size of that region is back in the late 60s early 70s the arab nations around israel could have cut that country in half in 
less than half a day given the distances involved so you have to understand when you're surrounded by 700 million people that want to kill you want to exterminate your people you have to be aggressive now that's not to completely absolve the israelis in terms of loss of life but again they have good technology and things like that but they're not like the us or or the uk in terms of the level of technological sophistication they have they also have a lot of reservists that are coming in that are professional but they're not going to be able to exert the same level of professionalism and care just simply because they're not trained as extensively and particularly in this situation where they're trying to push a lot of people through basic training so we have to put all this in context but in the same respect you're talking about urban combat operations which are about the worst type of operations you'd ever want to conduct particularly after a ton of rubble is created right when you see a picture that destroyed downtown gaza a civilian would look at it and say oh my god what a horrible loss of life but you know the military has cleared this out and you know it should be a little bit easier when frank and i look at that <laughs> there's a hide there's a hide there's a hide there's an ambush site there's a, it's just there's plenty of places for folks to to hide anyway let me step back so one of the things i wanted to let's dive kind of into the operational level because that kind of sets up the strategic piece when you're talking about tunnels frank can you say a little bit more like how extensive are these tunnels how deep do they go if you have any of the statistics how many miles where do they connect and how would the israelis even think about clearing them out okay sure from what i've gathered from talking to israeli idf friends and also from listening to hamas hamas say we have 500 kilometers of tunnels beneath gaza which is possibly feasible the israelis talk about between 200 and 300 kilometers beneath gaza right and mm -hmm. gaza is basically it's like 40 kilometers long and about you know four to five kilometers wide so that's perfectly feasible it's the most extensive tunnel system probably like ever built apart from maybe north korea when the united states and china clash the world will never be the same especially when forces beyond reality threaten to intervene what if the United States went to war with the People's Republic of China? How would these rivals fight for supremacy on land, sea, air, and across the stochastic streams of time? What wonder weapons would be unleashed? What horrors would emerge from the irradiated sludge of the South China Sea? What heroes would rise and forever change the course of history? Tread into the deepest and darkest dimensions of the multiverse, gaze through a kaleidoscope of fractured realities, and bear witness to the disturbing visions of World War III from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Weird World War, China. Available now from Bain Books at Bain.com. But, how the Israelis would go about it? The Israelis, they're two countries in the world that have the most extensive urban warfare and underground warfare training facilities. Those are the United States and the Israeli Defense Forces. The way the Israeli Defense Forces would approach this and the way they have been approaching this is the Israeli Defense Forces, one of the strategic doctrines is to lose 
the minimum amount of soldiers because they recognize that the IDF has, has a limited manpower pool. And they've just raised 360,000 soldiers, which pulls a lot of blokes and women from the economy, right? So it's a, a major drag on, on the economy at the same time, as well as providing sources of casualties. The way they'll go about tunnels, the tactical doctrine of the IDF is they will identify, isolate, cordon and control tunnels. And then the tactical doctrine is not to put troops inside the tunnels because those are basically death traps. They will seal off the tunnels. Now, there's different ways they can do that. They can use that to, um, either by air power, but on the ground blokes, they'll be using either filling it with cement or the Israelis. They have a, a kind of like a, a rapid expanding foam that uh, it is similar to what you use in modern day construction to like fill gaps, like a rapidly expanding foam. It's like a binary mm -hmm. material. Once the two chemicals combine, it produces a rapidly expanding foam that, that makes a very, very dense cement-like material. They can also use gas, like poison gas, but I don't think the Israelis will use that in civilian areas because then they'll be accused of human rights issues. And also as well... Yeah, and the chemical uh, weapons convention violations. Yeah, and, and like also that. as well, yeah. then it, as you know, operating in, in, in sea burn environment, once you're wearing a mask and you're wearing the suit, it severely degrades the ability of the operators to operate tactically. But I think the Israelis, they'll be using the foam, they'll be using explosives in the tunnels, they will certainly use a type of inert gas, smoke, to identify where the entrances and the exits to the tunnels are. And I think also close to the coast, I've been listening to Urban Warfare Project at West Point, and I think also that there's a possibility that the Israelis could use horizontal drilling techniques, like you use oil and gas. Mm, for shale, yeah, for shale. Right. And then you pump it full of seawater and basically like drown the terrorists like rats inside. All right, so, so there's several complications here. So, well, first of all, let me, you mentioned seaburn. So it's chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and what's the E? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> we use this stuff, we know exactly what it means, but we can never remember this stuff. People can look it up. It's not, you know, I, I got most of it. I know I, I'm 100% sure I got most of it, but I'm looking up it just now. means like, just means nuclear, biological, and chemical stuff, right? But one of the complications that you run into with kind of flooding it with seawater, because that's certainly what I would do, if there weren't American citizens, British citizens, and Israeli citizens in those tunnels. So the complication is th there are friendlies in those tunnels. And there's very likely the way that Hamas fights human shields, right? So... I would expect the 200 plus hostages that Hamas have, the ones that haven't been killed already by Hamas or raped to death, or that haven't been killed in Israeli airstrikes and bombardments, they will be used as final shields to protect the Hamas leadership against the final Israeli assault and or you know, to negotiate their release. But I, I, what I don't see, I can't see the Israelis agreeing to release like, you know, 900 or 9,000 Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorists from jail in return for those hostages, because those very same terrorists are the ones who entered into Israel on the 7th and murdered and raped and looted and killed and burned babies their way through Israel. So that's not an option for the Israeli government. I think there will be outrage from certain sections, not from the maybe the, the parents of the hostages, but there'll be outrage on the part of the, the greater Israeli population. If the government were to release thousands of terrorists from jail, in return for the hostages, 
because those terrorists are the very same who have murdered, looted, and raped in Israel. Well, this is the reason that the U.S. has an official policy of not negotiating with terrorists. That said, the fact that we had $6 billion waiting for Iran in Qatar before all this starts, people are like, oh, well, that's not for this sort of thing. It's for something else. It's like, well, money is fungible, right? The Iranians see that $6 billion coming, so they could just pull $6 billion from somewhere else and use it to fund these operations. Like so, cockroaches to a piece of shit. Yeah, basically, basically. So, Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, uh, yeah, we yeah again we got to be professional, professional, Frank, professional. I'm working hard to be professional here, even though, it's, even though it's hard. It's very hard. Now, there's also been reports that Delta is there, and Delta is there for very obvious reasons, right? Which is to, I suspect right now. You know, some people might speculate that they're behind the scenes talking to the Israelis. We're going to put they're probably in the environment disguised as somebody else gathering intelligence right now to figure out where these hostages are. At the same time, I'm sure the U.S. is, you know, just telling Hamas, like, look, you need to release our hostages. You just need to do it. And nowhere else, because I think it's that's just left unstated. And then I think once Delta gets a little bit more information, they do what they do best, which is very similar to what the SAS does, which is, you know, fine precision shooting um, and ending engagements relatively rapidly. And and so before I think the Israelis kind of do the flooding, I think they're very likely marking out where these places are limiting the number of entrance and exit points that they can and then going to do their very best due diligence to try to find most of these hostages but after a certain point when they get to the point where they're committing the majority of the forces then i think they do exactly what you said they're going to do and they flow them out okay can um, i say something mate, mate? i think yeah um, absolutely I, I, I disagree on two points yeah i think yeah there will be there'll certainly be like you know delta and you know brit sf blokes in Israel, as there always have been, like, you know, working with the Israelis. But I don't think that Delta will be in an operational capacity. One, because it's not their jurisdiction. And two, because, you know, if the Israelis, if the Israeli SF, like, you know, Saret Mahtal, Shaldag, Yahalom, and, you know, the other Israeli SF units, if they're having a problem identifying where the hostages are being held by the terrorists, uh, you know, the Americans and, and, and the Brits and others won't have a hope in hell. I'm sure that all those Israeli... All those That's operations, fair. all those operations will be run by Israelis. And also for, 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 for the other factor that, you know, if, for example, you know, special air service or, or, or Delta were to insert into Gaza, and if they were captured, then that would just be like a, a major jamboree in terms of, oh, look, you know, like the Brits, the Americans, their special forces are, you know, supporting the Israelis. I, I really don't think that that's a feasible operational scenario. I really don't think that the Brits and the Americans will get their hands wet like the israelis i think they will be consulting with the israelis maybe advising the israelis but nobody knows gaza better than the israelis let's talk a little bit about gaza i think the area is something like 41 square miles which to give folks a sense of the context so where the u.s army trains in the u.s at the national training center that's a thousand square miles <laughs> okay yeah. 
Washington, D.C. is about half the size of Gaza. So you're operating in a very tight environment, very small, relatively speaking, area. But it's very tight in the sense that, you know, the, there's debris everywhere. It's a kind of classic malt. Operations and open terrain. That's right. Thank you. I would I, as soon as I said that, I'm like, I remember the acronym, but I don't know what it stands for. Thank yeah, you. Military for operations, operations in open terrain. And for our British viewers, it's Tibua fighting in built-up areas. All right. So what takes one British paratrooper and one American cavalry officer ten minutes to figure out that they should know? And that's what the E in Seaburn is. What's the E in Seaburn? <laughs> Frank, what does it mean? We should know better, but what does it explosives, mean? Explosives, mate. Explosives. Explosive material. I thought explosives, but I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make it like special, like different than anything normal. But explosive materials, whatever that means, right? There's the material yeah. part that's probably important. Okay. So we were talking about it's unlikely that Delta would at least at this stage have direct involvement. Same thing with SAS, just given the depth of intelligence that the Israeli military has, as well as like Shin Bet, Mossad, stuff like that, right? They would just have a better handle on where these things were placed. The other thing that occurred to me when we were talking, you were talking about the Hamas leadership. Aren't most of the Hamas leadership, aren't they in like Dubai right now? Well, yeah, there's some in Russia, there's some in Damascus, there's some in Qatar. Yeah, they basically live the life. They drive Mercedes and their kids go to good schools uh, while their people starve and get murdered in Gaza. And let's not forget, I mean, if you're living in Gaza, Gaza isn't a democratic society, right? So I would say to all these kind of like beating heart liberals in the US uh, and the UK. Easy, Frank. Easy, Frank. Easy, Frank. Let's keep it professional. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I just say like, you know, uh, go to Gaza, walk down the main street, walk down Salaharin Highway, shouting out, hey, I'm Christian, I'm Jewish, and I'm also gay, and see how long you survive. I'm going to kind of diverge from the topic very, very, very briefly. I mean, it's the same topic, but it's what we're also seeing in the U.S. and Britain, actually. There's three anecdotes I'm going to tell. So in the U.S. and Britain, you are seeing folks posting just like missing, missing posters of their loved ones for some of the people who were kidnapped and potentially killed by Hamas, which if you did that with Palestinians, it would be perfectly understandable to post those photos and, and things like that, because I'm sure there's a lot of missing Palestinians and their families are looking. But I would never, ever, ever consider ripping down a like help me find my family member, Palestinian or Jew. So what you're seeing is you're seeing folks who essentially support Hamas. They claim to support Palestine, maybe they support both, but they're ripping these things down, which is completely insensitive. However, there's a recent video that's kind of gone viral now where people are starting to put razor blades at least in the United States, on these, on the back of these things, which I understand why they would do that, right? Because it's pretty cowardly and like just evil to, to rip them down, to yeah. 
throw them down. But that's also <laughs> that's I mean, that's a criminal act, right? Like I don't know what you would call it, but I understand why they would do that. But it's it's kind of escalating this way. And there's another example in the UK. So just be careful out there. I wouldn't recommend sabotaging any of this stuff. I wouldn't recommend pulling it down. any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just don't. Just I mean, these people have lost their loved ones. It's it's just bad, sick. bad form. Yeah, it's it, it's it's pretty sick. The other thing that I saw in the UK is there was yeah. a guy arrested for making a video commenting on there's too many Palestinian flags. What the hell is up with that? Why did that happen? Like, what's the dynamic going on in the UK that would have caused that sort of reaction? And then we'll get back to the tactical stuff. I'm just curious. Well, too many Palestinian flags. No, I, I didn't see that. But I'm assuming, I mean, I don't equate, you know, Hamas with Palestinians, although right. obviously Hamas is a product from of the society from which is derived. But I don't equate people can say, yeah, free Palestine, whatever. And I don't understand why that would happen. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, it's some just kind of hatred. I don't know. No, he's just saying there's too many flags. He didn't say anything that I th I thought was particularly. It just is just opinion, right? Like some like people in the United States, particularly on the left, say there's too many American flags, right? <laughs> like, okay, you well, can say that. Is, my own opinion is, if you support Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, Khatib Hezbollah, any Iranian proxy. Iran, the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. If you support any of those groups and you live in the West, then, you know, go and live in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Bangladesh, Pakistan, or some other third world hole that accommodates those kinds of beliefs that you aspire to. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on, particularly on the, again, I don't want to pick on one political side, but there are a lot of people who are giving political candidates a hard time about look you can support the ukraine thing or you not support the ukraine thing and there are valid reasons that you can make on both sides okay let's just leave that there but what happens is you have these activists who come up and are demanding that like why don't you support ukraine stuff like that and i have a friend he's an army colonel and he said if i were a u.s political candidate i would bring with me an army recruiter so that when these people come up and say, like, we need to be more involved in this and that, it's just like, oh, you can sign up right here. Like, yeah, sign up right, right? here, you fucking douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> right. Grab, right. grab so, your testicles in your hand, squeeze them, and be a man. Or well, a and, that's what, and that's what – this is so abstract for many Americans about how close we are, and I'm, I'm sure Brits too, that at some point, like, you can't rely on one segment of the population to do all your fighting. Right. So just be very careful about which engagements you choose to get into. All right. So I just went from the domestic kind of scene. We're going to come back to what's actually going on in yeah, Gaza. So, yeah. So we started talking about when you're going to start putting the seawater in the tunnels. At what point do you think that happens? Well, that will happen at the moment. The Israelis, they've cut off the Salahadin Highway north-south. It looks like they're about 100, 200 meters from the coast to the south of Gaza City. It looks like basically they're reducing the urban area in the northern part of Gaza, like looking at the map. You've also had Israeli armored forces advance effectively down the beach. And also, don't forget, you'll have Israeli naval forces offshore. 
who are providing fire support with ATGM 76 millimeter and also with 25 Mike Mike cannon. So ATGM anti-tank guided missiles, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So the Israelis will basically reduce. They've cut Gaza in half. They'll reduce the northern part. I would imagine that they will take weeks, if not months, to eliminate all the tunnels and Hamas terrorists there. And then they will concentrate on the southern half. It's basically like a python or a boa constrictor. They've bitten off the northern mouthful, and they're going to deal with that. And they've cordoned off the southern mouthful. Once they've dealt with the north, then they will deal with the south. That's the way that I'm reading the Israeli military commanders. Now, how are they dealing with civilian refugees like what are they doing to try to get these folks in a systematic way out of harm's way these folks i'm particularly talking about the palestinians who have hopefully nothing to do with this conflict well the israelis abide by military law they drop leaflets they use what's called door knockers uh, they drop small munitions on top of buildings which shake the buildings but don't collapse the buildings so that civilians have a chance to flee they issue sms messages telling Gaza civilians which areas they're going to hit and which obviously negates any aspect of Israeli surprise because they're informing civilians of the areas they're going to hit. But I would imagine they've already told Gaza civilians to go to the south beyond the southern evacuation zone. In terms of humanitarian aid, that's going to be very difficult. That's going to depend upon Egypt. Egypt, don't forget, in 2008, Hamas blew a hole in the wall and the fence that they had then and thousands of Gazans flooded into Egypt. Egypt under Sisi, it's like a military dictatorship. They have 30,000 Muslim Brotherhood prisoners in jail. Hamas is an offshoot of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. And for that reason, the Egyptians say, oh, we don't want uh, Gazan refugees because we don't want to perpetuate the Israeli displacement of Palestinians. But the real issue is that they don't want to have more Hamas Muslim Brotherhood terrorists in amongst those civilians in Egypt. And also don't forget in the Sinai Peninsula, up until 2013, the Egyptians were fighting a particularly brutal and nasty Islamist insurgency, which was also Muslim Brotherhood instigated. So the Egyptians don't want to have another internal security problem caused by Hamas inside Gazan refugees fleeing to Egypt. Now, what, as all this is going on, the Israeli military is squeezing this cordon. Do you have a sense for how many Hamas fighters there are? I don't. I mean, there's estimates from 5,000 to 10,000. Then again, you know, any swinging dick, you can give them an AK. And like, you know, if you've just lost your family, like your housing block has just collapsed and you've just lost like your wife and your three kids, somebody passes you an AK, then, you know, you're Hamas, right? Yeah. You got nothing left to lose, right? That's, yeah, you know, it's, underst it's understandable. It's understandable. We're, and I would do the same in that situation. Yeah, I would absolutely do the same. But yeah, it's kind of. Put yourself into that mindset, right? If they like some outside force kills your family and take everything away from you, you don't care anymore. You got nothing left to live for. It might as well. So, what about the West Bank? How does that complicate matters? Like, what are the Israelis doing to kind of keep that quiescent? Well, that's been a major problem, Sean. And the Israeli concentration, when I say Israeli concentration, the attention of the Israeli Defense Force and Shin Bet, because Shin Bet has operational responsibility for intelligence, counterintelligence in both the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And the West and, Bank is- And Shin Bet, 
for people who don't know, Shinbet is kind of the domestic intelligence organizations like FBI, yeah, it's MI5. Uh, domestic security and uh, counterintelligence service. But they also have responsibility for West Bank and Gaza Strip. But in the West Bank, that was one of the reasons why the IDF and Shinbet and other security forces, they took their eyes off the ball. One was because Hamas, they had this accord from 2021 and earlier that the Israelis would allow in aid and that the Israelis believed that Hamas was content with allowing some kind of like economic development within Gaza and that Hamas would restrict attacks against Israel. So the Israelis took their eye off the ball and they were focused on the West Bank. West Bank, a tinderbox, you've got a mix of basically the, the Palestine Authority, which has various levels of control over different uh, areas of the West Bank which the Israelis call Samaria and Judea. For example, the Janine camp is basically a no-go zone for Palestine Authority security forces. And that's why the Israelis have mounted major raids there. A major irritant in Israeli-Palestinian relations has been the right-wing government in Israel and also settler attacks on Palestinians inside the West Bank, which doesn't help. But that's really what made the Israelis take their eyes off the ball in Gaza, was what was going on in the West Bank. I think that the Israelis can definitely keep a lid on what's happening in the West Bank because they can, to a certain extent, they can rely on the Palestinian authorities there to control their areas. But it's a completely different kind of socioeconomic dynamic in the West Bank. But I, I don't see that emerging as a major source of threat as Gaza has been to the Israelis. What about in the north where you have Hezbollah and Lebanon, you have Syria... Maybe they decide they want to take the Golan Heights, which I think is unlikely given that they're still dealing with a civil war. So what are the Israelis doing to secure the northern border? Well, they've evacuated thousands of civilians. But, I mean, nobody's going to take the Golan Heights from Israel because they've got some major units there. And it's just not physically feasible given the amount of firepower that the Israelis have in the north. I think that Iran will try to restrain Hezbollah. There have been rocket attacks and anti-GM attacks. But what one has to bear in mind is that Hezbollah has some 35,000 rockets pointed at Israel, everything from shorter range kind of Kataisha type rockets to a smaller number of GPS precision guided missiles that can hit anywhere in Israel, including the Demona nuclear plant. But Iran uses Hezbollah as basically a deterrent against any Israeli attack against its own nuclear facilities. So Hezbollah is really a deterrent force for Iran. And I don't see, with the Israelis dug in on the Golan Heights and against Lebanon, I don't see that being a major problem for the Israelis being able to hold. And I think the Israelis, with the manpower they've generated, they're going to be able to concentrate their major combat forces against Gaza, however long that takes. And also as well, I'd add to that, I don't see Jordan, Egypt, or any other Arab states, nor Syria, trying to go to war against Israel, and especially not with two US carrier battle groups off the coast of the Med. That's not going to happen. I think the Americans uh, have specifically placed those two strike groups, spe specifically so that the Israelis can carry out their operations within Israel and the Gaza Strip. Again, largest armada in nato history which leads to a ton of other questions do they really need that much to kind of keep things quiet elsewhere or is there another purpose in your opinion well they've got the two carrier strike groups off the coast because if iran 
gets directly involved, overtly involved, and we've already seen the Americans reacting against attacks against their troops in Al-Tanf and along the border, the Syrian-Iraqi border. The Americans will launch ship-based and submarine launch cruise missiles against Iranian targets. And they also have the air power to generate you know, a massive airstrike capability against Hezbollah, should that become required. And that's a key point, I think, because from the 2006 war with Hezbollah, Hezbollah realized, right, you know, Lebanon is being destroyed. And since then, the Israelis can generate like hundreds more sorties per day than they could during the 2006 crisis. But the Americans have placed those carrier strike groups so close to Israel, precisely so that the Israeli Air Force can, con can concentrate on Gaza and also intercepting anything coming their way like drones from Syria or from anywhere else. That's my next question. So the Iranians, since the Russians invaded Ukraine, all this stuff is connected, right? So the Iranians have become very proficient at producing fairly high quality drones at Number. scale. Yeah, at scale. So what's the risk that you see a lot more of these drone swarms kind of coming and overwhelming uh, Israeli air defenses and potentially slipping through and doing some damage because you sink one carrier and that is a massive blow against the United States. So there is some risk there, isn't there? Well, there is. And in the 2006 war, we saw Hezbollah, they actually hit an Israeli SAR-class Corvette in the Mediterranean with an anti-ship missile because the Hezbollah have anti-ship missiles. But I think if that were to happen, I think the American strike groups are very well protected against that. Two, if Hezbollah did launch an attack against American ships, then it would receive a devastating response. Well, the other thing, too, is that this kind of drone warfare works both ways, right? So if they're cheaper to produce, you can mass produce them. The United States can mass produce hundreds of thousands of them at scale if they need to. So... It's not like a completely asymmetric, right? Now, I'm going to go a little bit further afield, but we got to come right back. So we have the conflict in Ukraine right now. We have this conflict. What are the chances that the Chinese kind of look at all this, look at the weather conditions in April and May, and decide to roll the dice in Taiwan? Yeah, I think that's a very big risk. The Americans are tied up. They've sent billions in aid, billions in munitions to Ukraine. Now they're tied into supplying billions in aid and munitions to Israel. And America is looking at a three-front war strategically in Europe, in the Middle East, against Iran, and also against China. And I think that's a, a very real problem. Uh, could I just uh, add to that? I think, yes, Israeli defenses could be completely overwhelmed by the 35,000 rockets that Hamas has. But I think if Israel were overwhelmed and like Iron Dome, all the rest of it, if Israel started receiving hits around the Demona nuclear plant, then I think- Oh yeah, we would intervene, absolutely, right. Well, no, then I would assess that you already have at least one Dolphin-class Israeli boat in the Indian Ocean, if not in the Persian Gulf with Popeye cruise missiles and nuclear tipped and I think that if it came to that, and if Israel felt felt overwhelmed, then they would look to a nuclear option. And now, Israel, Dolphin has both, both, Israel has both land-based deliverable, aircraft deliverable, and also submarine de de deliverable nuclear weapons. And Dolphin class, SLBM? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're diesel electric subs. 
Um, they have a, a Popeye cruise missile, which actually from the Mediterranean, it can hit Iran. But uh, I would assess that the Israelis would have at least one in the Indian Ocean so they can actually reach uh, Tehran, Isfahan, and also Iranian nuclear facilities. All right, so this could spiral out of control if it's not managed very carefully and confidently. Now, what about other potential flashpoints, particularly in the Bosphorus, kind of Black Sea adjacent? I think I, I believe Putin made a statement saying this is not a threat. Just know that one of these carrier groups is within range of our hypersonic missiles. Not a threat. Just want to communicate that. Is there a chance that that potentially spirals out of control? I don't think so, because Putin is not completely irrational, I don't believe. And he also knows that if he did that, if he directly targeted like the US or any, any member of NATO, if he targeted like Lithuania, then automatically the US, the UK, France, the, the three major military powers and nuclear powers in both the EU and NATO would have to respond. And I don't think he's stupid. Russian military power has been majorly, land power has been majorly degraded in Ukraine. The problem is, as you suggest, is that Russian naval power is still very, very effective. And literally the Russians, what I've seen like the last 20 years, I mean, I remember the Syrian war in 2016, they had like small missile boats, right? The Russians in the Caspian Sea, that were launching cruise missiles to hit targets in Syria. The Russians, wow. the Russians have put shipborne cruise missiles on virtually anything that floats. Yeah, the Caspian Sea or, is interesting because uh, it's completely landlocked, right? Yeah. Well, it's not completely landlocked because there are canals between the Caspian mm. Sea uh, and the Black Sea, but you can't move major ships through them. But what the Russians have done is what the Russians call a corvette, which would be like an offshore patrol vessel for the U.S. Navy or the U.S. Coast Guard. Every boat that the Russians have that's capable of carrying like a long-range cruise missile is carrying a long-range cruise missile. The other thing that's fascinating about this particular conflict is it's all connected, right? Like this is a very useful distraction for Russia for us right the head of hamas i believe had been visiting russia prior to all this at the same time prior to this conflict there was also the conflict that's going on between armenia and azerbaijan right yeah. and armenia is kind of the russian proxy and azerbaijan is the israeli proxy so there's israeli again it's not receiving proxy. yeah it's not receiving a lot of press and Americans aren't really that aware of it, but still all this stuff is connected. So, all right, let's go back to the conflict. I didn't want to get too far up. All right. So now that we kind of have a good picture again of all the random things that are going on around Israel that connect all this stuff, we first talked about cutting off the North, right? And then slowly constricting. But we didn't talk about the units. What units are involved in this particular operation on the Israeli side? Okay, well, you got Southern Command. And from what I've seen, I've been looking at the, the burials of Israeli soldiers, 
and also the videos and looking at the berets of the Israeli soldiers involved. You basically got Southern Command units. You got the 80th Territorial Division, but the primary divisions are the 167 Armored Division, which includes the Givati Brigade and the Hal Infantry Brigade, and you can see those in action. But I'd also expect to see the Oz Commander Brigade in action there, which includes Malgan, Maglan, Duvdivan. Duvdivan suffered heavy casualties initially, repelling the Hamas terrorists in, on the 7th of October, and also the Egoz, which is a guerrilla warfare unit. But there's also a very other interesting unit, which is the Bedouin Desert Reconnaissance Battalion. And there were six mm -hmm. of them. And when the terrorists broke through, and they actually reached the headquarters, the headquarters of the Gaza Division, there were six Bedouin soldiers there. One was a major, one was a colonel, an Arab colonel who commands the unit. And they held off more than 200 Hamas terrorists. And the terrorists actually infiltrated the buildings. And they had some of the other people who were fleeing the attack on the music, music festival. festival. Yeah. yeah, they'd taken refuge there. And I saw this interview and this Bedouin colonel, and he's speaking Hebrew with an Arabic accent. And he's explaining how he called in an airstrike from Israeli helicopters from eight Apaches. And they actually put missiles through into the recreation building of the headquarters of the Gaza Brigade because there were terrorists inside. And six blokes managed to hold off probably like 200 Hamas terrorists. And then there was a unit called Shaldag, which is one of two Israeli Air Force Special Forces units that actually came to relieve them. They survived. Oh, they survived, yeah. So you've got the Oz Brigade, but also as well, you've got some other interesting units. You've got the 33rd Karakal Battalion within that Gaza Division unit, which is a mixed female-male infantry battalion. Totally mixed infantry, male-female. And I also expect to see, I haven't seen them yet, because, you know, being a paratrooper, I'm always looking out for Red Berets, but I'm always looking out for the Israeli Paratroopers Brigade, the 35th Israeli Paratroopers Brigade, because they are shock units for use in any kind of like urban warfare engagement. But I haven't seen any Israeli paras yet. <laughs> How would they be deployed? They're obviously not going to parachute them into a city, right? I'm assuming they would be on like Blackhawks or whatever the Israeli equivalent was and repelling. No, they're going to go in on foot or mm -hmm. with you know, or trucks, and vehicles. Right. What I see as the structure of the Israelis fighting in urban environments, they're going to have like a battalion combat team with bulldozers and engineering support attached. And then broken right down to the company unit, you're probably going to see three platoons, each platoon of 30 men, but with sapper support, with drone operators, with engineering support, and with tanks standing off at a distance to basically provide distance so they don't get hit by ATGMs, but making entry points into buildings and taking out any points of resistance with the 120 millimeter uh, main gun. While you have closer in, you'll have infantry fighting vehicles, which will be closer in, following in the troops. The troops will clear the buildings, clear the areas, and then the armored in infantry fighting vehicles will use like, you know, chain, chain guns and 7.62 guns to basically provide direct fire support. So how high are the buildings in Gaza? Do you have like anything remotely resembling a skyscraper? Or are they relatively low? So the reason I ask is, is if you're raiding a place with very high buildings, right? It's better to start by repelling people off helicopters and then having them clear down instead of clearing up. 
right? Just given the energy you'd require. But... I, I very much doubt. I very, this is just based on my own professional experience. I very much yeah. doubt that you will see commandos or special forces repelling from helicopters simply because a station helicopter doing a rappel or fast rope can be hit very easily by an RPG. I would expect Israeli special forces units to be infiltrating by sea or by land. Now, what about the tanks that they're using? What's the composition? Are they mostly Merkavas? Do they have some M1s, like Abrams? What's, what's that composition look like? No, the Israelis have basically replaced all the frontline units in Southern Command, especially in the 167 Steel Armor Division. They're all Merkava, and some of them now have what's called you know, comfort plates above them. But they'll be doing standoff. They'll be taking out buildings yeah. from a distance, and then infantry will be going in, taking over those buildings, establishing points of fire, and the tanks will move in closer. The tanks will take out other buildings, and then the infantry will move in closer. As a tanker, I appreciate those tactics because you never want to be a tank in an alley in the middle of a city. It's just a death trap. Exactly, exactly. But also, I mean, don't forget, I mean, each Israeli brigade involved, they also have a specialist Sayeret reconnaissance company and a specialist Sapper company, which is expert in dealing with tunnels. Explosives. Right. Yeah, and as we said before, what they will do, the Israelis, they will identify where the tunnels are, they will cordon and control them, they will block the entrance to tunnels, and then will identify where their exit points are. And as they advance, then they will continue to like block those tunnels. And basically, they will trap Hamas terrorists like rats inside the tunnels. And in buildings where you have direct fire from Hamas, they will also use like, you know, D9 remote bulldozers to basically collapse the buildings on top of the terrorists. Now, what about people who've chosen not to flee? What are the reasons why there might still be civilians there? I mean, granted, Hamas might not allow them to flee, but are there any yeah, civilians Hamas that just... Them not to flee, because every hospital, every civilian facility has uh, deep dug-in Hamas facilities, military facilities dug-in below it, and Hamas has no interest in allowing civilians to flee, because the more civilians that are killed in airstrikes and bombardment by the Israelis, that more that fills into the Hamas narrative of brutalization by the Israelis. And also it's a win-win for them because the more civilians killed, the more martyrs, the more kids that will grow up and want to be like, you know, Hamas scumbags. What do you think the Israeli strategic objective is? Like, what's the end state? What's the future of Gaza? In, in previous operations in Gaza, the Israelis stated that they want to basically reduce the power of Hamas and make sure that it can't attack Israel. But now they've clearly stated military objectives is to dismantle Hamas completely and make sure that Gaza can never be used again as an attack point against Israel. So that uh, necessarily means the assumed mission would be total elimination of Hamas terrorists. But that could take months. Or years. Yeah, if you look at recent urban warfare environments from Stalingrad, there was Pavlov's house where Soviets held off against the Germans for three months. If you look at Mariupol, there were 1,200 Ukrainians. They held off 13,000 Russians for three months. Yeah, it could take a long time. But I think the Israelis are much better equipped than that. And also they're much better prepared and trained. And also as well now, you know, the Israelis have got their ass up. They're pissed off and they've accepted. They're prepared to take losses. And also, right. I think, reading between the lines, the Israelis are prepared to lose the lives of the hostages as well, because the Israelis are thinking, 
well, now is better than never. We have to destroy Hamas, dismantle them in the Gaza Strip, and make sure that the Gaza can ever be a, a launching point for attacks against Israel. Because, okay, we might lose 200 hostages, but in the future, we might lose hundreds of thousands more. You think Hamas expected their attack to have gotten as far as it did? My sense and my gut tells me that they were surprised about how far they could get in there. Yeah, I'd say the same. I think that they were completely surprised about how successful their barbaric attack was. But I also think that Hamas didn't fully in involve Iran. And I think that nobody's talking about this. But my own feeling was, or is, that if I were a Hamas commander, I'd be looking at decades of futility against the Israelis, and I'd be looking to ignite a wider war in the Middle East. So that's the other interesting thing. So I don't know if you're aware of who Ryan Macbeth is. He's another YouTuber who fo focuses almost exclusively on these topics. And he had gotten copies or samples of the Hamas op order, operations yeah. order. And it was much more sophisticated than Hamas seems to be capable of. As an example, they had the timing of various security cameras when they came off, when they came on, where they were looking, what times to slip through. The other thing that they did as part of those programs you mentioned at the very beginning, where they had the equivalent of work visas for Gazans to go and work in Israel, a lot of those folks, yeah, they were literally mapping out some of these vulnerabilities while they were working for the Israelis. So... Uh as I say, sources I'm talking to have also suggested that while Hamas kept Iran largely in the dark, that there may have been Iranian support in hacking the Israeli intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance network all along the Gaza Strip. Mm. That would implicate mm -hmm. Iran if it were made public. I think personally that the, this is just my gut feeling, that the Iranians trained Hamas yeah. uh, in these kind of IT tactics and that Hamas did it for themselves. I think Iran was actually caught off guard by Hamas's success. I don't think that Iran wants to go to war with the United States or wants a wider Middle East war because it's quite happy spreading its tentacles as it is. And Hamas has caused a major distraction and a major attention on Iran. I think that Hamas was looking to ignite a wider Middle East war because they are nihilists. They consider themselves yeah. martyrs. They don't give a fuck about the civilian population. They say, oh, every Palestinian is prepared to die. Every Palestinian is a martyr. What have they got to lose? They're looking to ignite a wider Middle East war. I get the same sense you do. I mean, some of it's based very loosely uh, off of the evidence, but more of it's just gut. And the reason I say that is I think there may have been some elements in the Iranian establishment that maybe had a hint of this, but I don't think they had any idea. For Hamas, it was an absolute tactical victory, but I think it's going to turn out to be a major strategic miscalculation that's going to lose them Gaza and going well, to get I them agree. annihilated. I agree. It's a major, it, it was a major right. tactical victory for them, an operational victory, but a major strategic defeat because what they've done is they have destroyed the accommodation they had previously with Israel, which was Israel controls uh, around the borders of the Gaza Strip. It allows people into Israel to work. It allows aid to go into Gaza in return for Hamas keeping attacks against Israel to a certain level. Now that paradigm has been completely destroyed. Now Hamas 
has demonstrated to Israel that it is not capable of living next to Israel and that it has to be destroyed as a threat. And the other thing, too, is to your point about the Iranians, this is not 2006 where the Iranians have easy access of retaliation against U.S. targets in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, there's still some in Syria and things like that. And, you know, Iraq, but not nearly as many targets that the Iranians could have struck back against. And that was a major consideration in choosing not to take out their nuclear program. Now, not so much. <laughs> yeah, so, and we also saw last week the American Air Force. They took out IRGC and affiliated targets, right, in Syria in retaliation for attacks on Americans. The Americans have made it very clear, okay, this is not part of the war in Gaza, but we will respond forcefully. And before Biden didn't have a ball sack, listen, I'm not a Trump supporter, but one thing I do love about Trump is when he fucking whacks Qasem Soleimani, the head of the ICCQF. I fucking love that. I fucking love that. Yeah, because then the Iranians knew we were serious. Like, it's a very different mindset. I mean, to give you an example, when the... All they understand, uh, mate, all they understand, mate, is a big hammer on the head. That's all they understand. Not only that, like, dropping on the heads. That's the only thing that they understand. Go back to 1987 when we, you know, the U.S. Navy wiped out their navy in a few days, like other oil platforms and things like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like 87, 88, like that whole period, right? But that's not what got their attention. What got their attention was when the USS, I think, is Vincennes, accidentally shot down a an Iranian passenger airliner. Yes. And the reason it got their attention is, you know, for us, it was horrific. Like it was, it was a horrible mistake, something that we absolutely didn't do deliberately. But the Iranian mindset was, oh, now the Americans are serious. They're killing civilians now. And they completely backed off because of it. Like that's the difference. I'm not, Look, I'm not advocating for that sort of tactic, but that sort of thing is what gets their attention. Mate, when I, I, look, I was in Iraq in 2004, right? I was there. The Iranians backed off completely. Initially, in 2004, 2003, the Americans and Brits invaded, right? 2004, the Iranians were saying to the Americans, oh, we'll cooperate with you on terrorism and we won't support terrorism from like Iran, all the rest of it. Because they were shit scared that the Americans were going to turn their guns next on Iran. By the once way, the once the Americans by, have been in by Iraq, the way, several you, years, know that we, you know that we were. Right. Yeah. 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 I know. And once the Americans yeah. have been in Iraq for, for several years and the Iranians realized, oh, actually, the Americans aren't going to do a right turn into Tehran. Then they started supporting and instigating the Shia militias, which killed my mates, your mates and Iraqis that we work with. Right. They're yep. scum. Terrorist scum. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the last piece of this puzzle is. The UK is probably like this, but I know the U- US has suffered from a complete dereliction of duty on the border. And there have been millions of folks streaming across it. What are the odds that either Hamas and or the IRGC have been able to infiltrate into the US through these means? Well, they already have been. I mean, there was the plot against the Saudi ambassador to the UN in New York, right? Well, didn't they murder a Saudi in Washington, D.C.? Well, there was an attempt against him. And then you only have to look at the U.K. There have been numerous terrorist attacks 
in the last like two decades instigated in the name of Islam. And these are all groups that are, have very similar affiliations, if not direct affiliations to Hamas, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State. For me, they're all the same. I mean, you have to understand the nuances between them, but it has the same kind of like mindless, godless, completely barbaric mm -hmm. ideology, which is yeah, to kill anybody, yeah. kill anybody who doesn't follow Islam to basically replace societies in the United States and in Europe and in Israel with an Islamic caliphate, like they tried to do in Syria, like they tried to do in Iraq, like the Iranians have already done in Iran. Okay, they're Shia, but it's the same kind of bloody mindset of terrorism, which involves oppression of your own people and complete hatred towards anybody who doesn't share your own religious values. All right. Now, we don't have much time for this, but I have to, I'm going to ask this question. So you're Hamas. What do you do? What do you do to A, survive and B, win? Well, you have to think, you know, are they rational or irrational? I think the leaders of Hamas are rational, even though they are led by an Islamic mindset of hatred. What I think they will try to do is once most of the Hamas fighters are killed, they will probably try and use the the hostages that have been taken to parlay away for them to escape destruction themselves. A good question for that. If you're one of the leaders who aren't with the people, aren't suffering with the hell that they unleashed... Do they need to be worried about being assassinated? Oh, they do, yeah. Because even if they escape Gaza, even the ones now who are in Syria, the ones who are in the Gulf, Israel has set up a specific task force to hunt down every senior member of Hamas. So they're all dead men walking. Just like Israel did with the Nazi war criminals, just like Israel did with the barbaric savages who committed the atrocities at Munich in 1972. The Kidon of Mossad won't stop until all those people are dead. And maybe not just with a 9mm, but also maybe dead in a very horrible way. Anything I didn't talk about that I should have raised or questions that we should have covered? Yeah, I think Israel's strategic position in the Middle East. Israel is a, is a democracy. It's also America and the EU's number one ally. Israel also is the most powerful military force in the Middle East. It sits astride the Suez Canal and the approaches to the Bosphorus. Israel has alliances not just with NATO and America, but also specifically with Greece and with the Republic of Cyprus. So they counter aggression, not only from terrorists, but also from the Russians in Syria, the Syria Assad regime, and also the Turks who are not the best players in NATO. And also as well, the Israelis wax a lot of bad guys coming from Iraq through Syria on the so-called land bridge, right, to the Mediterranean. And they also ease pressure on American and British special forces who are aiding Kurdish forces fighting against Islamic State in eastern Syria. So Israel plays a very, very strategic part in Western military thinking. All right, my friend. As always, a pleasure. Thank you. It's great to see you again. And, you know, more episodes in the future, my friend. And you too, brother. And here's my bye-bye. Uh... Bye-bye.
If you enjoyed today's video, please hit like and subscribe, and also hit the notification button so you can be notified whenever I post new content. Thank you. Now, if you're enjoying the channel and you want to support it, there are several things you can do. In fact, there are five things you can do. The first thing you can do is just buy my books. I got plenty of books out in the market right now, and I would prefer that folks buy a book rather than giving me direct support because they get something out of it. They have a real tangible product. The second way you can support me is by becoming a member on YouTube or becoming a patron on Patreon. And just go to either site and it'll explain everything. third way you can support the channel is by checking out my merch site, which is here. There's plenty of stuff that you could get to support the channel. And I'd appreciate that you, you have it and can wear it. Not only do you help support the channel, but you also help promote the channel. And I appreciate that. The fourth way that you can support the channel, and this is really easy, is anytime you want to buy something on Amazon, literally just go to the description below and click on any link, literally any link. The channel gets a cut of that, and it costs you no extra money. You just go through the link as I'm part of the Amazon Affiliates Club. The fifth and final way you can support the channel is through donations. Now, I don't prefer these because it's more of an expression of gratitude, but you don't really get anything out of it as a subscriber to the channel. However, if you decide to do these options, there's two options. There's Buy Me A Coffee, which is a separate site, and there's also you can go through YouTube with either a Super Chat, Super Sticker, or a Super Thanks. Again, I prefer Buy Me A Coffee because that organization takes less money than Amazon does. But either way, I appreciate any support you are willing to give the channel. So thank you very much and keep watching. I really appreciate it.